some other stations. We broadcast from Pembrokeshire to Pembrokeshire. This is Pure West Radio. This is Pure West Radio. Live from our studios in Haverford West. People are strange when we're strange. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. The streets are uneven when you're down, when you're strange. Faces come out of the rain when you're strange. No one remembers your name when you're strange. Good evening, you are listening to Pure West Radio and this is The West Files and we start 
uh, this month's show with an apology from my co-host Ronnie, who can't join us tonight. But she wants to make it absolutely clear that she's not at a Christmas party, that there is no secret Santa, no cheese and biscuits, and that Christmas jumpers are not being worn. Now, we are, of course, in December, and uh, there is a great tradition this time of year to tell ghost stories. And I thought, well, we won't be any different. We won't reinvent the wheel here on uh, the West Files, so we're going to have an evening of ghost stories. Now, we're going to have the first hour. Now, I'm obviously no teller of ghost stories, but we know a man who is the teller of curious tales. And so between uh, now and 10 o'clock, we will be having a compilation of the best ghost stories from the teller of curious tales. Then, after 10, it's time to get really spooky when we wind the clock back to the 1970s and 1980s to recordings made at the time of perhaps some of the scariest ghost stories ever recorded. Stay with us here on The West Files. Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. On a bright October day in 1899, an Egyptian farmer was working in his fields. Suddenly, the ground gave way from under him, and a part of the field which he and his ancestors had been working for centuries sank into the earth and carried this bewildered farmer with it. When the hubbub had subsided, and his mind was cleared of its bewilderment and confusion, he looked around. He found himself in an enormous subterranean room, a room connected with countless similar rooms, all bare of furniture, all deathly silent, but every one lined from ceiling to floor with shelves, shelves loaded with small, nondescript bundles. Had he stumbled into a treasure trove, Had he found new tombs, which ancient Egyptians were so clever at concealing? He snatched one of the bundles and found it wrapped round with cloth like a mummy. He began removing the wrappings, and after working feverishly for some minutes, he held the unwrapped object in his hand. It was an embalmed cat. This subterranean labyrinth was a cat cemetery, and literally millions were stacked away on these shelves. Cats were sacred to the ancient Egyptians, and were embalmed and mummified like their masters, so that they too could arise on the Egyptian judgment day. He clambered out of the cat mine and walked to Alexandria, and went to a speculator in antiquities, telling him of his find. The speculator Being a shrewd businessman, shipped a boatload of these 3,000-year-old mummified cats to Liverpool, England, 
where 180,000 of them were offered for sale at public auction to be used for fertilizer. The auctioneer, using a dead cat for a hammer, sold them in ton lots to the assembled English farmers. They bought approximately $18.50 a ton, about a fifth of a cent for each cat. And now, on the day of the resurrection, millions of Egyptians will wait in vain for their beloved cats to arise from the dead. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. The generally accepted belief is that the words printer's devil originated from the fact that the printer's apprentice was always covered with ink and therefore resembled one of Satan's imps, hence the name Printer's Devil. But this isn't quite true. When printing was first invented, it was looked upon as the work of the evil one. So when Aldous Manitus brought a young Negro slave in Egypt and brought him to work in his printing establishment, the Venetians believed the printer had travelled to hell and brought back a demon. The report spread that Manitius was a sorcerer, using an imp of Satan to do his devilish work of printing. Resentment grew until one day a frenzied mob bent on ridding Venice of this horrid evil stormed Manitius's establishment. In order to save the life and that of the Negro boy, he was forced to face the crowd and speak to them. Men of Venice, this boy is no demon. He's a human from a land where all men are black. He's no printer's devil, but flesh and blood like you and me. Pinch him and feel for yourselves and see. The crowd's anger was appeased, but from that day, the boy and all his successors were printer's devils. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. 
Listen to the teller of curious tales. Do you believe in the devil? When man lived in caves, long before he could write, he scraped crude pictures on the walls of his home. Among these uncouth drawings, we find sketches of demons and devils. For the belief in the evil spirit, in Satan, dates back to the dawn of mankind. It's a universal belief too, for wherever we find human life, we find this belief. The devil may go by a thousand names, but his description is the same in China, in Iceland, in Timbuktu, or right in our own backyard. Dante says in describing him, Ah, what a fierce cruelty his look bespake. In act how bitter he did seem, with wings buoyant outstretched, and feet of nimble's tread. His shoulder, proudly eminent and sharp, was with a sinner charged. By his horn she held him, the foot sinew gripping fast. The gong strikes, my time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. But on my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> this is Pure West Radio. Across Pembrokeshire, 24 hours a day. Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. This is the story of Michael de Tenny of Budapest, Hungary. Michael was hard up. His wife and children were in want. All he had left from his more prosperous days was a $25,000 life insurance policy. He wrote the company offering to give up the policy if they would pay him $12,000. They wrote back, refusing the offer. He called them up and warned them that they were due for an unpleasant surprise. The insurance official who spoke to him laughed, but if he had known what plans Michael had formed to take care of his family, he probably wouldn't have been so funny to him. That evening, Michael ate dinner with his prosperous friend at a little sidewalk cafe. Suddenly, and in the middle of the meal, Michael arose from the table and in cold blood fired six shots into his friend's body, killing him instantly. When the police came, they found Michael laughing. At his trial, he refused a lawyer provided by the state. He laughed at the attorney the insurance company sent over to defend him. He did his utmost to help the prosecution prove that it was a premeditated murder. 
He laughed when the jury brought in a verdict of guilty and the judge passed the sentence of death. He laughed when he mounted the scaffold and the executioner adjusted the black cap. He was still chuckling when the trap was sprung and his neck snapped. Michael Deteni had had his revenge. Had Michael committed suicide, the insurance company would have paid nothing. But there was a clause in his policy which paid a double indemnity in the case of a natural death. Even the insurance company had to admit that hanging is not a natural way to die, and Michael's family received $50,000 from them. It was an unpleasant surprise. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. There is in the British Museum an ancient manuscript which carries the following heading. Ancient Prediction. Entitled by popular tradition, Mother Shipton's Prophecy, published 1448. It reads as follows. Carriages without horses shall go, and accidents fill the world with woe. We all know that's true enough, don't we? We'll continue. Around the earth thoughts shall fly in the twinkle of an eye. If that doesn't predict radio, what does it do? Through the hills man shall ride with never a horse at his side. And here we have trains and tunnels. Underwater men shall walk, shall ride, shall sleep, shall talk. And there we have the diver and the submarine. In the air men shall be seen in white and black and green. Iron in the water shall float as easily as a wooden boat. These are so plain they need no explaining, but now we come to what I think was her most remarkable prediction. The discovery of gold in California. She said, Gold shall be found and shown in a land that is not now known. Not bad, was it, for a woman living in an obscure country town in England almost 500 years ago? Was all this just a lucky guess, or are some people gifted with the ability to look into the future? Until recently, science jeered and said guesswork. But now, 
Alexis Carroll, one of the world's most brilliant scientists, says he is convinced that every man has, at times, flashes when he can see into the future. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. Have you ever eaten a Mike apple? It's a pale yellow apple with an excellent flavour. But somewhere in the pulp of every Mike apple, you will find a small red speck, exactly like the tinge of fresh blood. There's a strange story behind this fruit, and this is it. It's named after a farmer, Micah Rood, who lived outside of Norwich, Connecticut, early in the 18th century. Micah was known as a hard-working, industrious young man. Suddenly, his habits changed. He grew idle, quarrelsome, intemperate. No longer was his farm the showplace of the community. He neglected his cattle. He shunned his neighbours. Some thought he was bewitched. Others spoke of insanity. All this took place during the winter of 1727. The following spring, when the orchard burst into bloom, a strange phenomena took place. All of Rood's apple trees were covered with pink and white blossoms as usual. All except one, and its flowers were blood red. And the marvel didn't end there. The tree that bore the red blossoms was the only one in the orchard that wasn't covered with ruddy, red-cheeked apples. Its fruit was waxen yellow. When the apples from this tree fell to the ground, each apple, without exception, was found to have within a well-defined bright red globule, called, by those who saw it, a drop of blood. This strange occurrence soon had the whole community buzzing with gossip, and suspicion was brought to a head when someone remembered that a peddler had passed through Norwich about a year before. He had spent the night at Micaroods, and no one had seen him since. Someone suggested that perhaps the young farmer had murdered him for his money, and then buried the body under the apple tree. The talk grew until one afternoon a mob gathered and armed with picks and shovels swarmed out to Rude's farm. Micah met them at the entrance to his property and refused them admittance 
but he was soon subdued and the digging commenced. The men dug for almost an hour and then the first grisly discovery was made. A foot, still encased in a rotting shoe, came into view. Then an arm, the torso and the head. Soon a whole human skeleton lay stretched on the ground, grinning up at the horrified farmers. Mikarud's crime had been discovered. They set out for Mika's house to drag him back to the village and to justice. They found a raving, tearing maniac. Mika was hopelessly insane. His mind had given way under the pressure of his conscience. He died within a few months. The fruit from this odd tree was known for many years as the Mika apple, until time shortened it to what it is today, the Mike apple. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> West is best on Pure West Radio. Tonight. I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. We always think of man as being the master and destroyer of all other animals. Although this is quite true, there is one animal that man has never quite controlled or mastered. The rat. Wherever man goes, the rat follows or accompanies him. Whether it be building a ship, erecting a church, digging a grave, ploughing a field or taking a journey, the rat must be considered. He goes around the world on men's ships, and wherever man plants a colony, the rat plants one of his own. Build three walls in a jungle, and before the fourth is finished, the rat will have arrived. Millions and millions of dollars are spent each year to destroy them, but they still seem to thrive. They are the one animal who lives with man, but is not his friend. They steal his food, they destroy his works, and worst of all, they infect him with the dreaded typhus and bubonic plague. Goldsmith says that before the brown rat arrived in Ireland, frogs were more abundant. They were so hunted in their marshes by the rats, they were eaten clean off the Emerald Isle. There is something horrible and fascinating no horror story is complete without their scampering through the echoing rooms and the gnawing of their teeth is heard behind the walls as their gleaming eyes peer from their holes. 
How often have you heard of dying prisoners in their loathsome dungeons, seeing rats through the horrid gloom, their small eyes like glittering coals, as they rush through the death-like silence on their claw-like feet? There are many legends about rats. A German one, which has come down from the Middle Ages, tells us about a wicked bishop named Hatto, who let his people starve while his own barns were filled with grain. Their cries for food became so loud they annoyed him, so he invited all the hungry people to an empty barn to pray for food. And while they were on their knees, he locked them in, set fire to the barn and burned them all to death. Next day, a judgment was sent on him. Thousands and thousands of rats. They overran his house, they overran his barns, and even threatened the bishop himself. He became so frightened, he fled to an island in the middle of the Rhine and locked himself in the house he had built there. But the rats swam the river, gnawed their way into the house, and thousands of them attacked the bishop. In a blind panic, he fought them off for hours. Faster than he killed them, new rats kept arriving. Thousands and thousands of them. They ran up his legs. They leapt upon him from the walls. They dropped from the ceiling. Exhausted, the bishop slumped to the floor, and the rats swarmed over him. Nothing but his bones were ever found. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. In 1672, Ben Johnson was New York's official executioner by appointment of the king. Ben had one assistant who was permitted by law to help with the torturing, prepare the gallows and perform other minor duties. But when the law took a life, no one in the royal colony of New York could do that but Ben Johnson. Since Ben was paid by the job, and New York was a law-abiding colony, his income was, at times, very meagre. So Ben took up burglary as a sideline. He was quite successful at it, too, for a while, but one night, as he was dropping from the second-story window of a house he had just robbed, Ben fell right into the night watchman's arms. The watchman promptly took Ben to jail, 
Now, burglary at that time was a capital offence, and while not as serious as a crime as murder, the punishment was the same, namely hanging. Ben was brought to trial, and the court had very little difficulty finding him guilty, so the judge sentenced him to hang himself. But Ben was no fool. He refused to do it, knowing there was no one else in the whole colony legally qualified to do the job. This refusal put the judge in a spot. In order to have Ben hanged, he would have to send to London for a new hangman, and that would take months. Until the new man arrived, Ben would be sitting in jail, eating his head off at the taxpayer's expense. An extravagance the citizens of colonial New York strongly opposed. Then the judge got an idea. The nucleus of this idea was Ben's assistant. Although it meant a comparatively light sentence, it would at least rid New York of a burglar, and that was the main object. Ben was sentenced to 39 lashes at the whipping post. His right ear was cut off, and he was exiled from the colony. Since this was Ben Johnson's only bid for historical mention, no one knows what came of him afterward. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. (laughs) Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever Listen to the teller of curious tales. In 1906, there was a hotel on the Rue Lamonde in Paris called Hotel de Amsterdam. It was most frequented by dealers in precious gems. Its landlord was Mynheer van der Veldt, a Dutchman and a former diamond cutter. Business was good and the hotel was prosperous. One evening, a South African named Culvert registered there. It was known that he carried a number of uncut diamonds in his pockets, but so did most of the guests and no one paid any attention to it. On his first Friday at the hotel, he retired early in the evening. And as usual on Saturday morning, a waiter brought coffee and rolls to room 14. He knocked on the door. There was no answer. Another knock, harder this time. Still no answer. Vaguely alarmed and sensing disaster, he went to the landlord and told him he was unable to awaken the young man in room 14. The landlord ran upstairs and looked through the keyhole. 
but could see nothing, as the key was in the lock. With a piece of wire, he worked it out, and inserting a master key, opened the door and entered room 14. The South African was dead. He was hanging from a huge ancient iron hook which was cemented into the wall. Around his neck was the cord used to loop back the heavy window curtain. The dead man's face was blue and swollen, his eyes wide open. His face was a mask of nameless horror, and his legs were doubled up to keep them from touching the floor. Since all the windows and doors were fastened from the inside, it could have been nothing but suicide, and was so listed on the death certificate. Two weeks passed. The South African suicide was practically forgotten when room 14 had its second tragedy. This time, a Frenchman. He was found hanging from the same hook, a piece of the same cord around his neck, the same doubled up legs, the same expression of nameless horror. Again, the verdict was suicide, the doctor remarking on the strange power of suggestion. That day, all the guests left the hotel. The proprietor was in despair, offering a hundred francs to anyone who would spend a night in the room. A sergeant of police, an ex-soldier who had served in Africa, accepted the offer. On Thursday night, he slept in room 14. He slept soundly, and next morning reported that he had no way been disturbed. But someone remembered that both deaths occurred on Friday night, so the sergeant was asked to stay in room 14 that night. He agreed and accepted another hundred francs and laughed when anyone tried to dissuade him. Friday night passed and Saturday morning came. The waiter's knocks on the door of room 14 once more remained unanswered. After the door was broken in, there was the sergeant, hanging from the ancient hook, the curtain rope around his neck, an expression of horror on his face. No violence, no foul play. The newspapers took it up, and the headlines screamed of a murderous ghost, a haunted room in the heart of Paris. They offered a considerable reward to anyone who would stay in the room. Riccardo Garibaldi moved in. For four days he never left room 14. Twice during the day and once each evening Garibaldi was called on the telephone and each time he answered that he had seen and heard nothing. This continued until Friday. Twice that evening he answered the phone, but on Saturday morning Garibaldi was dead and he died exactly as all the others had, but this time the police refused the doctor's verdict of suicide. They insisted it was murder and set out to prove it, for they had a tiny piece of paper on which was written, something's happening, the wall is and then one word, assassins, 
Two detectives, unknown to that part of Paris, came to the Hotel d'Amsterdam. One registered to room 14, the other was given accommodations on the floor below. It was Friday night. One detective was hiding under the bed, the other sat up reading. Everything was quiet. Suddenly the silence was broken by a hissing sound, a noise like that of escaping gas. But both men were prepared for this, as they expected a stupefying gas of some kind. They stuffed their noses with tiny cones of cotton which had been treated to neutralise gas. The man in the chair feigned drowsiness and then deep sleep. The lights went out. Slowly, a part of the wall began moving forward and a figure stood in the recess. A squat, deformed Chinaman with long, thin arms and fingers that moved like the legs of an imprisoned insect. He advanced towards the detective, who was feigning sleep. Silently, the detective under the bed rolled out and stood up. For the first time, the silence was broken when he snapped out the following, Stand still! Up with your hands! After that, pandemonium broke loose. Fighting, struggling, tables and chairs thrown and overturned. Two shots rang out, whistles shrilled in the street, the sound of running men and trampling feet. Then quiet again. When the detectives turned on their flashlights, they found two Chinamen and a white man on the floor. Both Chinese were unconscious. The white man was stunned. By the time the two detectives had handcuffed the latter, Six other men were driven through the secret wall, opening by the police. After these men were safely under lock and key, a careful search of the premises was made. An underground passage, leading to room 14 from the house next door, was found. And through this passage, the murderer had come to rob and kill. Stealing silently into the room, he strangled his victims, whose legs were then doubled up, and after rigor mortis had set in, a rope was put around his neck, and he was hung on the ancient hook. So was solved the mystery of the suicide room. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Follow Pure West Radio on Facebook. Search for Pure West Radio. Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories, true stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales.
This is a story from modern Ireland. A young farmer had been killed in an accident, and as is custom in Celtic countries, his wake was being held. Neighbours had gathered to pay their respects to the dead man, who lay on a couch in his living room. During their lamentations, the door opened quietly, and an old man, bent almost double, tottered slowly into the room and sat down by the fire. It was old Donald, who for many years had suffered from rheumatism which bent his spine. Donald joined the wailing of the mourners until a knock at the door was heard. It was opened and the village carpenter brought in a rude pine coffin. The dead man was lifted from the couch and placed inside. Then the mourners walked past to take the last look before the lid was nailed on. When old Donald crept over, he not only looked at the corpse, but taking the hand of his dead friend, he lifted it to his shoulder and in a pleading voice begged, Take me pains with thee, laddie. Take in the name of God, take them. The lamentations had ceased. The room was hushed. Slowly, old Donald straightened. I think he hadn't been able to do for 15 years. Standing upright, he discarded his stick and walked from the room. What was this? A miracle? Or was it just a variation of the laying on of hands? Any doctor can give you plenty of high-sounding names for a type of cure, and a really good physician recognises its existence. But he can't tell you why. At least not convincingly. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs>
had the knuckles of a dead man tied to them. The cat was baptised and cast into the sea. A storm came up, the ship foundered, and the king's life had been endangered. Failing to kill his majesty in this manner, Grace now proceeded to bring about his murder in another way. This time, she hung a toad up by its heels, so that its venom would drip into an oyster shell. She then tried to bribe someone to steal some of the king's dirty linen in order to cause extraordinary pains, which would continue until his majesty died. All this seems extremely silly, except that there was a storm and the king did suffer excruciating pains. Hence the prosecution. So Grace Keith was judged guilty, taken to Castle Hill, bound to a stake, strangled, and her body burnt to ashes. But this isn't the end. Here comes the really curious feature of this story. Before she went to her death, she laughed at the prosecutors and said that after they'd burned her body, she would sit in a tree at the crossroads in the form of a crow to torment them forever. And whenever they drove past the crow would call, the horses would shy, and she would always be present to mock them. Naturally, a legend developed from this, a legend that has come down to the present day. Hearing of it, a young American determined to try the efficacy of the witch's prophecy, drove a horse which had never been within 20 miles of Castle Hill, into this crossroads without touching the reins. In the exact spot mentioned in the legend, the horse balked and refused to go forward. He wouldn't budge until he had been blindfolded and led past the spot. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> Tonight, I, the teller of curious tales, open my book once again and bring you strange and unusual stories. True stories, stranger than any fiction ever written. Listen to the teller of curious tales. Reverend Dr. Morgan Dix, rector of Trinity Church, lived a quiet, well-regulated life, for the New York of 1880 wasn't the noisy, hectic city it is today. So when one February morning, a clerical gentleman appeared at the door 
to conduct the Reverend Doctor's three little daughters to his exclusive boarding school, the minister of Trinity Church was a bit perturbed. First, because he hadn't asked the clerical person to call for his three little daughters, and second, because he had no daughters. Scarcely had he finished his explanation when there was another man at his door, but on some mission. All morning they came, each with a letter asking him to call. After he had disposed of the schoolmasters, salesmen and representatives of Bible societies, religious publishing houses and charitable organisations began arriving. Each claimed to have a letter from the doctor asking him to call and pick up an order or a contribution for his organisation. And when these gentlemen weren't clamouring to see the now harassed minister, the postman was arriving with mail from the firms who hadn't sent their representatives. Next day, the profession of callers continued, supplemented by letters from bishops and high episcopal dignitaries, indignant letters, pitying letters, letters suggesting that the Reverend Dix consult a good physician. To the worthy Dr. Dix, it was all a deep mystery. Was it the work of an enemy or a practical joker? The person responsible was giving the tormented pass in a pretty bad time, and he was glad when, after a week, things returned to normal. But before the Reverend Dix could draw a real sigh of relief, the second horde descended upon him. This time, they were old clothes women, come to purchase the parson's wardrobe. Twenty-eight of them, with twelve children, arrived at the same time. Clamouring excitedly, they yelled and haggled and tried to bargain. They fought the poor parson, and they fought each other. They brawled, they flung stones, and even dragged the clock from a passerby when he refused to sell it. It was late in the afternoon before they were chased home by the police. Quiet reigned in the rectory, but only for a few hours. Then carriages began racing through the streets and pulling up in front of the parsonage. Before midnight, thirty of them had been there, for all the leading doctors in the city had been notified that Dr. Dix had had an epileptic fit and was dying. One by one they left, indignant, disgruntled. Dr. Dix didn't sleep well that night, and next morning before the now almost hysterical minister could fortify himself with a cup of coffee, the doorbell commenced ringing again. This time it was about a dozen shoemakers come to measure some little girls for new shoes. They were easily gotten rid of, and the rest of the day was quiet, but it was only a lull because at seven o'clock, two dozen prominent clergymen presented themselves. They had received invitations to dine with the Reverend Dix, to meet the bishops of York and Exeter. The rector of Trinity spent a horrible, sleepless night wondering what the new day would bring. But he hadn't long to wait, for almost with dawn it commenced again. This time, they were representatives of large department stores who had all received letters from Dr. Dix saying he had been insulted by them and was going to sue. After much apologising, 
for no one knew what they were taken care of and left. Then came light in the form of a letter. It read, These annoyances will all stop after you have paid me a thousand dollars. If this is satisfactory, put a personal in the New York Herald saying, Gentleman T, all right. This was Reverend Dix's first clue to his tormentor. He went to the police immediately and they advised him to insert the advertisement. But on the day it appeared, there were six others exactly like it in the same paper. When the persecutions continued, the police made extraordinary efforts to capture the parson's tormentor. Almost every available man was put to watching mailboxes, post offices, in the hope that one of them would catch the perpetrator mailing his letters. They didn't. He eluded them completely. But they did pick up one clue. A letterhead with Trinity Parsonage, 27 West 25th Street, printed on it. But when the police couldn't locate the printer, this clue came to nothing. Several of these letterheads were found in a hotel room which had been occupied by a chap calling himself Edwards Eugene Fairfax Williamson. After much to think about, the police finally picked up this gentleman in Baltimore. He admitted being the Reverend Dix's molester, but he said he waged his campaign of malicious annoyance because he had been expelled from Trinity Church as a Sunday school teacher. The jury before which he was tried didn't believe his story, so they convicted him of attempted blackmail, and he died in prison. The gong strikes. My time is up. The teller of curious tales has closed his book. On my next visit, I'll bring you other stories, curious tales, strange beliefs. Until then, sleep tight. <laughs> there we go, the teller of curious tales, with some very curious, rather spooky tales for Christmas. This is December, this is the West Files on Pure West Radio coming up. You need to prepare yourself as we go back to the 1970s, to the ghosts of R.E.F. Bertram Newton, and then even back further in time to Borley Rectory. These two investigations were recorded at the time, back in the 1970s and the 1960s, and listen out for the ghosts who make an appearance. Just before I disappear, um, just a little heads up that um, the Westfires will be taking a break for the next few months as we have to go and investigate some new cases, but we will be back in the spring with more spooky stuff from in and around Pembrokeshire, West Wales and further afield. Let's go over to Borley and RAF Bertram Newton. Download the Pure West Radio mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. It is difficult for many people to believe in ghosts and this is understandable for we tend to accept only what we can see and hear with our normal senses. 
In our day-to-day -day lives, we're unlikely to come up against paranormal happenings, and yet, from time to time, strange events take place, which seem to verge on fantasy. Often, these